Hello, and welcome everyone to another episode of Perfect Shadows. This week, we'll be leaving the Middle East, and much like Alexander the Great, end up in India. Now, I have to admit that I am woefully uneducated when it comes to the vast majority of Indian history. I know Alexander wound up there with a bunch of pissed off soldiers who were on the brink of a mutiny. It's home to Buddhism and Hinduism, the Taj Mahal, the Ganges River, Mahatma and Indira Gandhi, and bits and pieces of the devastating effects of British colonial rule. Other than that though, pretty much close to nothing. I remember Ashoka the Great from Civilization IV, so I went to look him up and thought, hey, this guy seems pretty neat. Let me check out his ancestors just in case one of these guys could be covered before we dive into the big cheese. Bindusara looks cool, but info's a bit spotty, and if he's the second Mauryan emperor, let's check out who started this whole family business. Lo and behold, we land on our boy for this week, Chandragupta Maurya. It was a bit confusing researching for this episode at first, as there are a few other Chandraguptas that pop up about 600 years later. So while the majority of this will be on the emperor himself, we'll definitely be devoting a good chunk of time to his main man, Chanakya, as he's got a pretty important part to play in this whole story. This will actually be a bit more like a two-for-one episode, as they're both fascinating characters and you can't really tell the story of one without the other. There's actually a 208-episode-long television show in India which aired a few years ago, which covers this story, in case you guys end up wanting a little bit more. As with the others we've covered so far, our usual disclaimer carries on. People, especially famous rulers from this far back in history, often have spotty records which require us to fill in the gaps with circumstantial evidence or legendary stories followed by a wink and a nod. I'll do my best to point out what we know, what we don't, and what's definitely made up. Also, some of these Indian names are tough, so forgive me when I butcher their pronunciations. Chandragupta Maurya's ancestry is pretty much unknown. He is thought to be born around 340 BCE into a tribe of peacock breeders, or into a family of minor nobles. In some Buddhist texts, it is claimed his mother was pregnant when Chandragupta's father, the chief of the Maurya clan, died in battle. She fled to what was then known as Pataliputra, which is now known as Patna, in the northeastern state of Bihar, about 145 miles from the Nepalese border. His uncles managed to get him adopted by a cowherder, who then sold him to a hunter once he was older. It is around this time that we get introduced to someone who would become Chandragupta's guru, Chanakya. A guru, in this sense, is actually much more than a teacher. Described by Joel Mleko as a, quote, counselor who helps mold values, shares experiential knowledge as much as literal knowledge, an exemplar in life, an inspirational source, and who helps in the spiritual evolution of a student, end quote. Picture him as the Obi-Wan and Yoda to Chandragupta's Luke Skywalker, and you've got a pretty strong idea of their relationship. Let's take a brief look at his early beginnings. Chanakya, or Katilya as he is sometimes called, was a Jain Brahmin. Brahmins belonged to the priestly religious caste of Hindu society, which just so happened to be the top of the totem pole as well. Jainism is another ancient religion. In order to not get too bogged down in details, their main tenets are non-violence, non-attachment, broad worldview, and asceticism. So we have Chanakya as a monk who hears a prophecy foretelling that he would be responsible for creating an emperor and ruling from the shadows. Seeing no reason not to believe this, Chanakya goes about his life until he wanders into a village of peacock breeders and assists a pregnant woman who is about to give birth to Chandragupta. As a reward for his efforts, he tells this woman that she must give up the boy and he would eventually be back to adopt him. I'll delve deeper into Chanakya's primary contributions later on in our tale, but for now, let's keep going with Chandragupta's life story. The previously mentioned Buddhist texts, actually epic poems, detail how these two met again. Apparently, Chandragupta was playing with his buddies, pretending to be a king and giving orders. Chanakya saw this, perhaps remembered the boy he had helped birth, and decided to buy him from the cowman and adopt him as his own. 
he becomes the boy's teacher and sends him to study at the university in Taxila. Founded in the 10th century BCE, Taxila was one of the most renowned schools of the ancient world, with a student body of over 10,000 students from all over Mesopotamia and Asia. You can actually visit its ruins in modern-day Pakistan. So Chandragupta studied there for eight years under Chanakya, learning science, medicine, literature, art, and military tactics. Once his education was complete, the pair moved back to Pataliputra. During this time, the extremely unpopular Dana Nunda was ruling the majority of northern India. Sources are divided on what happens next, but they usually agree that Nunda was offended by something Chandragupta or Chanakya said, and the offender is sentenced to be executed. The budding duo escape the clutches of the evil king and are forced into a life of exile. This is where it gets a bit nuts, and one of those sort of meeting at the crossroads of history moments. If this were a movie, it'd be the part where we get such an unexpected cameo scene that the audience would gasp in surprise and quickly hush everyone around to catch what would happen next with bated breath. At the same time, Chandragupta was essentially banished from the Nunda kingdom. None other than Alexander the Great himself is in India with his Macedonian armies, running a campaign in which he hoped to reach what was thought by the Greeks to be the end of the world. Megasthenes, a Greek diplomat who we'll look at a bit closer later in our story, among other sources like Plutarch and Justin, claimed that Alexander had a meeting with Chandragupta, or Sandrokotos as he is known to the Greeks. Depending on which version of the story you read, Sandrokotos was either spending time at Alexander's camp as a fugitive, was a spectator during the Battle of the Hydaspes, or, more interestingly, actually asked Alexander if he could serve in his army for a time in order to learn Macedonian warfare tactics. Reliable information here is definitely spotty. We don't know if he was granted permission and stayed for a year or so, or if the meeting ever really happened. Justin, a Roman historian writing a century later, wrote that the meeting went so terribly that Alexander actually tried to have him killed. He wrote, quote, Sandrokotos was of mean origin, but was stimulated to aspire to regal power by supernatural encouragement. For, having offended Alexander by his boldness of speech and orders being given to kill him, he saved himself by swiftness of foot. And while he was lying asleep, after his fatigue, a lion of great size having come up to him, licked off with his tongue the sweat that was running from him, and after gently waking him, left him. Being first prompted by this prodigy to conceive hopes of royal dignity, he drew together a band of robbers and solicited the Indians to support his new sovereignty." End quote. This definitely lends itself to a movie scene. You see the up-and-coming protagonist who manages to run into arguably the most powerful man on earth and score a meeting. The audience knows this guy's reputation as THE Great. We expect him to maybe help our young hero or at least impart a nugget of wisdom, and instead, we get a full 180. Turns out the great is actually the great bastard. He tries to have our hero destroyed and Chandragupta just barely manages to escape. Again, who knows how much of this is true, but it certainly made its way into my headcanon. Alexander's men eventually start to mutiny and he heads home, dying shortly after. Funnily enough, Plutarch actually mentions that Dananunda was so unliked, Alexander could have easily taken over India if only he had forced his men to go just a bit further. So our duo are again roaming the countryside and finally starting a rebellion against Dananunda. They start gathering mercenaries and recruiting soldiers to join Chandragupta's army. Chanakya is in the background minting coins using some secret techniques that apparently turned one coin into eight and creating alliances with neighboring territories. They try attacking the Nunda capital but are repelled. Chandragupta decides to work his way from the outside in instead, slowly chipping away at Nunda's power by capturing province after province. There's actually a neat little myth about Chanakya that really plays up his tricky side. Apparently, Chandragupta and the army ran across a town which refused to surrender. Chanakya enters the town undercover as a Shaivit mendicant and finds some idols protecting the villagers. When the villagers ask if he saw any possible way to beat the army, he somehow talks them into removing these idols. Once they remove this protection, Chandragupta is easily able to take the town. So after dismantling the empire's provinces, 
Chandragupta and Chanakya are able to consolidate their power and lay siege to the capital city again, eventually winning the battle. Depending on the sources, Dhananunda is defeated and either killed or exiled. It is now around 321 BCE. Alexander has been dead for about a year, and Chandragupta, not quite even 20 years old, has just founded the Maurya Empire and is now the undisputed ruler of northeast India. Following the death of Alexander, his empire splintered and was carved up among his generals into numerous successor states. The territories in northwest India were still under the control of the men he had left behind, along with the number of satrapies which had capitulated to him during his campaigns. Most important to our story is the ruler Selefkos Nikator, Alexander's top man in the east, who would wind up founding the Seleucid Empire which stretched from India to the Levant. So Chandragupta moves into northwest India and takes out the Macedonian satrapies of Nicanor and Philip before directing his attention to Selefkos. The two fought a number of battles before signing a truce. The treaty included a marriage, possibly Selefkos' own daughter Helena, to Chandragupta, the northwestern provinces, and a bunch of elephants. Far from starting his own ancient Macedonian circus, the reasoning for the inclusion of these animals lies in the previous battles Alexander fought in the region. Upinder Singh writes, quote, The aspects of Indian warfare that fascinated and worried the Greeks more than anything else was the elephant. They had encountered Indian elephants in their battles against the Persians, and Alexander had received gifts of elephants from allies and defeated parties. Diodorus asserts that the Gangaridae had never been conquered by foreign nations before because they had the most numerous and largest elephants, and foreign kings therefore feared them. Alexander's soldiers' refusal to venture beyond the Baeus may have been because they feared the Nunda army, known for its large number of elephants. The Greek awareness of the importance of war elephants explains the treaty concluded at a later date between Chandragupta Maurya and his Hellenistic counterpart, Seleucus Nikator. Apart from a matrimonial alliance, it involved the Maurya king receiving the provinces of Arachosia, Gidrosia, and the Parapanesadai, that is, Kandahar, Makran, and Kabul, in exchange for 500 elephants. The deal indicates the enormous military value of war elephants at the time. Selefkas turned around and made great use of these elephants at the Battle of Ipsus in modern day Turkey, winning a decisive victory over one of his main rivals. Selefkas also sent an ambassador to serve in Chandragupta's court. If you've been paying close attention, you'll recall we actually introduced him a bit earlier as Megasthenes, who just so happens to be the main Greek source for this whole tale. Although his work Indica has not survived in its entirety, there are numerous mentions to its content in the works of other historians like Plutarch, Arrian, and even IPA favorite Pliny the Elder. So now Chandragupta is in control of the entirety of northern India, parts of modern-day Pakistan, and eastern Afghanistan. He turns southward and campaigns into the Deccan Plateau. Victorious, Chandragupta Maurya has now become the first to unify the Indian subcontinent. He is able to lay down his sword and focus on ruling his new empire. Let's take a look at his administration before we switch over to Chanakya's contributions. Nilakanta Ayer writes, quote, In civil government, Chandragupta showed an aptitude which placed him far above the ordinary warrior king. The selection of counselors from men respected on account of their high character and wisdom, an equitable system of judicial administration, efficient management of municipal affairs, development of roads and irrigation works, concessions to husbandmen and artisans, encouragement of passenger traffic and commerce, and perhaps also the suppression of piracy by a board of admiralty, limitation of slavery, and many other measures to promote the prosperity and civilization of the people, end quote, certainly speak to the quality of governance that Chandragupta set in place throughout his empire. The council of ministers, of which Chanakya held the top spot, seems to have been made up of men who had earned their positions through merit. These ministers were placed in charge of different aspects of the empire, including sanitation, census-taking, law and order, collection of taxes, trade, public works and local infrastructure, foreign relations, military maintenance, and, as we have seen with many ancient rulers, standardization of weights and measures. 
Direct sources are spotty, but Megasthenes, among others, reports a flourishing cultural scene, primarily in the arts and architecture. He also notes the creation of a road system built from the capital of Pataliputra to his former university in Taxila, a distance of over a thousand miles. Although the state maintained a monopoly on weapons manufacturing, private businesses were encouraged to compete in other trades, such as mining. Religious freedom, or at the very least tolerance, also seems to have been established throughout the realm, with religions such as Jainism, Buddhism, and Ajivika thriving alongside Brahmanism. Accounts of how Chandragupta carried himself have also made their way to us, and they paint the portrait of a man who enjoys the ornamentations and trappings of royal life, yet is always careful to not overindulge or drop his guard. Nilakanta Ayar writes, quote, We have interesting glimpses of the private life of the king. He sometimes permitted himself to indulge in drinking, but never to an excess as he might fall a victim to the foul plots of ambitious women. He did not sleep in daytime, and even at night he had to change his bed occasionally, as a precaution against attempts on his life. The king, says Strabo, left the palace usually on four occasions, to lead the army in person in time of war, to administer justice, to offer sacrifice, and lastly, to go to the chase. Hunting was a favorite pastime. The king marched out of the palace to the accompaniment of drums and gongs and was surrounded by a host of armed women who rode some on chariots, some on horses, and some even on elephants. End quote. Other sources mention his affinity for wearing ornate clothing made of the finest muslin fabrics available. His precautions against possible assassination attempts are notable as well and probably taken on the advice of Chanakya, as some of the previous Nanda rulers had come to power through such efforts. The all-female personal guard is a pretty badass sight if you picture it. The thinking here was that women would supposedly be less likely to betray the emperor and try to seize the throne. There are even legends that claim Chanakya personally mixed small amounts of poison into Chandragupta's food as a means to build up his immunity in the case of an assassination attempt, a practice which would come to be known as Mithridatism and features prominently in one of the many sub-stories of the Count of Monte Cristo. The story of eating poison is important as it is central to a rather sad tale recounted in some Jain sources. Apparently, Chandragupta did not know about the poison that was being administered to him, and he shared his food with his pregnant wife. Side note, I know I haven't even mentioned this queen, apparently named Durdara, but it's because there's close to no information on her other than this story. She died almost immediately. She died almost immediately. As she was a week away from her due date, Chandragupta cut her belly open to save the baby. The baby was saved, but the poison had already touched the baby's head, leaving behind a permanent blue spot. He was named Bindusara, which means the strength of the drop. Buddhist legends are a bit more gruesome, with Chandragupta beheading the queen after he realizes she's been poisoned, cutting the baby out, and having the baby placed inside a freshly killed goat every day for a week so it could be properly born. The drops of goat blood then result in the name. Whichever version is true, or isn't, Chandragupta had a son named Bindusara who would, in time, come to succeed him as emperor. Now let's leave Chandragupta here for a bit and go back to our man in the shadows, Chief Minister Chanakya, or as he'll be mentioned in numerous other sources, Kautilya. We've already seen his direct impact on Chandragupta as his guru. From his adoption, to his education, to his military campaigns, and his government administration, Chanakya has been at Chandragupta's side through it all. Just a quick aside, Chanakya's origins are mentioned in numerous sources, with certain details changing depending on the Buddhist or Jain version. In the former, he was born with canine teeth, which was considered a sign of royalty. In order to calm his mother's fears that he would neglect her after becoming king, he broke his own teeth. His unattractive appearance, from his broken teeth and crooked feet, is then given as the reason Dananunda threw him out of the palace, causing the offense that sets in motion the war for power. The Jain version, however, has him born with a full set of teeth, another supposed sign of royalty. All this teeth stuff seems like some ancient dentist propaganda, but whatever. Chanakya's father figures the best way to make sure his son won't let the prophecy get to his head is by breaking his teeth himself. He grows up and marries a woman whose family ridicules her for having such a poor husband. He heads to the capital to beg for alms from Dananunda. 
While there, he sits on the king's throne and refuses to move when repeatedly asked to by servants. Eventually, a servant kicks his rude ass off the throne, and Chanakya gets pissed and vows to bring down the whole Nanda kingdom. I think he was definitely acting like an asshole here, but what do I know? There's numerous legends about the campaigns. Stuff like following the first failed attack on the capital, he overhears a woman scolding a child for sticking his finger in the middle of a bowl of soup and getting burned. The woman apparently says the boy was foolish like Chanakya, who started in the middle, where it is hottest, rather than starting at the edges, where it's colder. This supposedly gives him the idea to attack from the outside in, conquering the outer provinces before attempting to besiege the capital again. Another tale, which shows his loyalty to Chandragupta, says that he cut open the stomach of a priest who had just eaten food in order to feed it to Chandragupta, who had been hungry. I mean, thanks for thinking of me and everything, but I'd rather just stay hungry at that point. Chanakya has many stories about him that highlight his cunning as well. Apart from the story we mentioned earlier about him capturing the city by going undercover, there is one which mentions the king they allied with early in the campaign, named Parvataka, falling in love with the Vishakanya, belonging to the deposed Dananunda. These women were assassins who allegedly had poisonous bodily fluids. Femme fatale seemed to be a thing in ancient India. So Chandragupta approves this marriage union only to have Parvataka become deathly sick when he touches his bride during the wedding. Chandragupta goes to call for a doctor when Chanakya advises him to let Parvataka die so he can annex his lands as well. Chanakya also raised money for the state treasury by inviting rich men over to gamble at his home, getting them drunk, then using loaded dice. Another story has him setting up a trap to prove to Chandragupta which priests should be supported. He set up some powder on the floor by the women's dressing rooms and used the footprints of the peeping offenders to determine who was worthy of staying at court. In case you're wondering, the Jain monks did not peep, and having passed the test, were then appointed as spiritual counselors to Chandragupta. The last story I'll tell you takes place much later, after Chandragupta's death. So his son, Bindusara, is now emperor and Chanakya has remained in his post. Chanakya nominates a man named Subandhu to a ministerial post. The appointment is granted, but Subandhu turns out to be coveting Chanakya's position. He tells Bindusara that his mother died because of Chanakya. The emperor checks with some nurses who tell him the story is more or less true. The emperor flies into a rage and wants nothing more to do with Chanakya. He's pretty old at this point and decides he's had enough. He retires and, in the Jain manner, begins starving himself to death. Bindusara comes to know the full details of what happened to his mother and tries to bring Chanakya back. Chanakya is still pissed and refuses, so Bindusara orders Subandhu to apologize and bring him back. Subandhu, being the asshole that he is, instead decides to burn Chanakya to death and take his home for himself. In the house, Subandhu finds a chest with a hundred locks which he promptly begins breaking open. Once he managed to get the locks off, he found the inside to have a sweet smell of a perfume and a note which read that whoever smelled the perfume would have to either become a monk or be cursed to death. Subandu made sure the curse was real by having some poor bastard smell the perfume and eat some fancy food, something which monks would never do. And once he saw the guy had died, Subandu was forced to become a monk himself. Perhaps Chanakya's greatest contribution is a work entitled Artha Shastra, a political treatise which would come to influence future Indian dynasties for centuries to come. This ancient text has drawn comparisons with Niccolo Machiavelli's Il Principe, although, as Upinder Singh points out, quote, Given their relative chronological position, it makes more sense to describe Machiavelli as the Italian Cotilia. However, even a cursory glance at the two works shows that apart from the vast chronological and cultural gulf that separates them, Machiavelli's vision of politics and the state pales in comparison with Cotilia's, both in terms of conceptualization and detail. Branded as the arch-proponent of realpolitik, in which the ends justify the means, the Artha Shastra needs to be understood within the context of the ideas of its time. 
Its apparent amoral unscrupulousness can be seen as an attempt to define politics from the perspective of the king's political and material gain. Cautilia defined a political sphere, injected a strong dose of pragmatic reason and argument into political discourse, and made a strong case for the regulation and perhaps even mitigation of the random violence and capriciousness that must have characterized ancient states. End quote. It's also possible, even likely, that Arthashastra was actually started by Chanakya and subsequent authors continue to add to the work over the next centuries. The work is divided into 15 books, each pertaining to a certain topic. These include discipline and the conduct of a king, administrative responsibilities, economic practices, law and order, foreign policy, military tactics, and other government topics. Now this next passage is a bit long, but Berger Avery does a good job listing some of the more unique inclusions in the text. He writes, quote, there is a great deal of originality in his ideas on the relationship between a monarch and his neighboring states. For example, he tells us that there are only two forms of policy for a king to choose in his dealings with other kings, war or peace. The operation of these two policies can take six different forms. Agreement with pledges is called peace. Offensive operation is war. Indifference is neutrality. Making preparations is marching. Seeking the protection of another is alliance. And making peace with one and waging war with another is termed a double policy. Cotillia deals at considerable length with the complexities and duplicities required for a king to pursue his relationships with his peers. It was the specific task of officially employed spies, informants, and secret service agents, and its diligent use was of the utmost importance to the ruler. What is generally termed Machiavellian in the context of historic rivalries of dynasties and ruling elites in European history was very much grounded in Cotillia's thinking 18 centuries before Machiavelli himself. A large part of the text is also concerned with the duties of a king. Many of the personal qualities recommended for the king would be considered admirable in any age. The king is advised to avoid betaking others' women, appropriating others' wealth and injuring others, long sleep, fickleness, falsehood, gaudy dress, associates of low character and unrighteous actions are all condemned. This emphasis on the king's personal discipline is part of the wider rule of law that Cotillia prescribes for society in general. A quite harsh and unforgiving environment of rules and regulations is to be maintained by an extremely efficient and organized bureaucracy, whose officers wield great authority over every aspect of the lives and occupations of the people. The legal relationships between husbands and wives, debtors and creditors, employers and workers, masters and servants, traders and customers, in all these relationships a severely retributory regime is invoked as soon as one party is deemed to have broken the contract. The index to the text lists 336 different offenses for which fines are to be levied. The offenses and fines, in a sense, tell us about one highly placed person's criteria for a well-governed society based on Vedic codes of conduct." End quote. With such a variety of topics covered, it's easy to see how the Artha Shastra was able to influence so many future generations, both the rulers and the daily lives of citizens. So we're finally reaching the end of our story. Let's check in on Chandragupta. A Jain saint named Badrabahu foretold that a 12-year famine would befall the land due to all the violence which occurred during Chandragupta's campaigns to build his empire. After about 24 years on the throne, Chandragupta abdicated in favor of his son, Bindusara. At this point, it seems he left Brahmanism and had fully gone over to Jainism. Following in the Jain tradition, Chandragupta is said to have lived his final years as an ascetic with Badrabahu. For those that don't know, defined as a lifestyle where one renounces all pleasures in life in search of a religious goal. Following Badrabahu's death in 297 BCE, Chandragupta ended his life through Sayakana, which involved voluntarily fasting until death. It was not a suicide by Jain standards. Rather, it was sort of a way to remove harmful karma, which could negatively affect his rebirth. So that is the story of Chandragupta Maurya and his loyal minister Chanakya. Nilakanta Ayer mentions, quote, 
Reference has been made to his intrepidity and ability as a soldier, vigor and wisdom as an administrator, to his keen sense of beauty and love of nature. To these he added a wide intellectual curiosity and a deep interest in religion." End quote. He rose from humble origins and not only founded the first unified Indian state, but ruled it so effectively as to have his son and grandson inherit an ever-improving empire. His grandson, the Emperor Ashoka, would in time be known as Ashoka the Great and counted among India's greatest rulers. Don't worry, we'll definitely cover his life at a later time. But nothing Chandragupta accomplished would have been possible without the unfaltering support of Chanakya, who also managed to leave his own long-lasting mark on Indian history with the Artha Shastra. Together, they were able to carve out an empire that would see them as the first great rulers of the Indian subcontinent, helping to mold the national identity of India and set the standard for future rulers. As always, I'd like to thank you all for tuning in this week. Please check out our Instagram at Perfect Shadows Podcast to check out some portraits that I have of Chandragupta Maria and Chanakya, including some pictures of their characters from the television show we mentioned at the top of the episode. Our website at www.perfectshadowspodcast.com also has a list of the works cited in this episode. Next week, we're going to be heading over to China and exploring a man who, much like Chandragupta, would unify his nation and become the first emperor of China. Thank you, and I'll see you next week.